Shops were boarded up, the streets were almost empty, and there was a stench of death in the air. Francesco was just trying to get hold of a few vegetables, but Florence seemed deserted these days. It meant that for a while he'd been able to hear the distant echo of horses' hooves on the cobblestone roads, bouncing from house to house, and now the sound broke out into the street ahead, a whole train of carriages heading his way at some speed. He scampered to the walls and peered back as it passed him. It was full of the dead. Maybe neighbours, shopkeepers, blacksmiths, people he knew, all on their way down to the graveyard by the river. Soon there'd be another carriage load on the way. It was the only life in the city now. The bodies looked bloated, with blackened toes and fingers hanging over the sides of the cart, and as the wheels hit each flagstone, the hands jumped and fell as if they were waving at him. A cold chill crept along his spine, and as he turned back into the street, two dogs sprinted past him, chasing after the dead. Welcome to the 14th century, and to the third episode of our History of Pandemics season. We've already heard about the plague that wasn't, then about humanity's first genuine recorded rush with plague, and now you'll discover what we do and don't know about its most notorious outbreak. The Black Death is a gruesome name, well matched with a grim disease, and both the epithet and the infection have survived to the modern period. But first, we should check back in with my colleague, Dr. Blanchet Agouti, who can remind us what exactly the plague is. Well, essentially, the plague is an acute, life-threatening infectious disease caused by gram-negative intracellular bacterium called Yersinia pestis. So Yersinia pestis often infects small rodents like rats, mice, squirrels. That's kind of where it likes to hang out. And it's usually transmitted to humans through the bite of an infected flea, although there are other transmission routes that it can take. We've only since the 19th century even understood that it was a bacterium that caused such an infamous thing as the plague, which before then it was thought to be some kind of punishment from God or a miasma, so essentially something caused from bad smells, putrescent matter, the cough of uh, um, sick people, just rather than it actually being a microorganism. So that's a reminder of what plague is. But how did the Black Death outbreak start? To find the answer to that, there was someone in Glasgow I needed to call. Well, my name is uh, Samuel Cohn, uh, and I'm professor of medieval history at the University of Glasgow. For the last uh, 20 years, more than 20 years, I've been working on principally the Black Death, but on diseases and more the human reactions to diseases. And on this, I, I finished in uh, 2018 a rather large book, at least in terms of pages, of uh, uh, and in terms of the scope, geographical scope and the temporal scope, uh, a book with Oxford University Press uh, entitled Epidemics, uh, Hate and Compassion from the Plague of Athens to AIDS. I was keen to learn from Sam where the outbreak first emerged. The narrative evidence is that it enters Europe uh, coming from the, the Genoese port and it arrives in uh, the fall of 1347. We know about earlier bouts with Justinia pestis, this type of disease that we now think Black Death was, 
uh, that goes back at least 5,000 years ago to the Bronze Age. Now, this is not recorded. This is computed evidence uh, that stems from genosequencing and phylogenetic trees of the ancestry and the splits of different strands of Yersinia over these years. Now, for the Black Death, whether it was more virulent or just could spread much more efficiently is another question that the genosequencing, I think, hasn't really gotten a hold of and may not ever be able to get a hold of. But at any rate, there's this notion of a big bang that occurred someplace, and there's a lot of disputing about this. This is really very much up in the air now, or someplace probably in the plateaus of, of Mongolia, China. This goes back, depending on who you're reading, to even the, the, the late 11th or 12th century. But doesn't really seem to be spreading out of that area through different trade routes until the 14th century. And then we have a key point that's taken not from genetic studies, uh, but from archaeology. And this goes back to the 1880s, actually. And this is the gravestones, uh, numerous gravestones from the Thorian Christian communities in that part where China meets with the Russian steppes, the high plateaus around the lake of Izakul, which is just to the west of Uzbekistan, so very close to China. And there we have uh, this dissemination of uh, these Christian communities through their gravestones, and they go back further. So we know that the increase in mortality is about the same ratio that we find with the Black Death. We have that data. So if you want to call that recorded, in some ways it is recorded because it's on, it's recorded in stone. The problem is that there's been keen interest in those grave sites since the new techniques of genosequencing have been developed. However, no one has been able to use that information to connect that those strains of plague, or they even know that it's really in the same ballpark, it's the same disease as what the Black Death was. Uh, so the, the court is out, and unfortunately, in the 1880s or soon afterwards, a lot of that evidence was uh, removed and it seems maybe destroyed. But there are other settlements too that uh, to be investigated. Slightly before it gets to Messina in, in Sicily, in October, or maybe it's even uh, uh, slightly earlier uh, by the time the chroniclers pay attention to it. But it goes on another route, a completely different route from it seems that area to Constantinople. And it hits Constantinople uh, slightly earlier. And it has its own route. Curious little twists and turns. It gets to Messina before it gets to Florence or in Hinterland. It goes to uh, Florence via probably Genoa and then Genoa down to Pisa, Pisa, then across. And its movement across land is, is, is slightly slower than by sea. You get uh, strikes of it as early as the summer uh, on the uh, Devon coast in 1348. But then for some reason in the, in the Netherlands, we don't see it really uh, blossoming until 1349, after you've really had already a significant outbreak. This disease travels as fast as any disease uh, that contemporaries had ever experienced, and especially over long distances. 
and much more quickly than modern Yersinia pestis of the third pandemic, even with the benefit of uh, railways, automobiles, and steamships. So that's how the outbreak started. I also wanted to know how the disease spread. Yersinia pestis usually likes to be transmitted around small rodents. So that is their chosen host, and especially the black rats, which most people know about, called ratus ratus. What happens is you've got two main cycles. You've got the enzootic cycle, so the plague bacteria circulate at low rates within populations of rodents without causing excessive die-off, which is quite important, because it means that the fleas that are associated with those rodents can continue to live off those animals and serve as long-term reservoirs. So that's what usually happens um, in nature. You then have an epizootic cycle. So other species can become infected by the plague, which can cause an outbreak amongst animals that aren't used to having the plague. And then you get a lot of die-off of those animals, and then their fleas want to jump off into whatever's nearest by to get a blood meal. And that's when humans can become accidental hosts. So essentially, there are passive or active ways that humans can get caught up in these cycles because you have a sylvatic cycle which is essentially in the wildlife so you have wild rodents and their fleas kind of circulating the plague amongst themselves and then you've got an urban cycle so you've got more domestic type rodents like mice which you might find around the house and say the wild rodents um, are kind of become close to the domestic rodents their fleas can then jump from the wild cycle into the urban cycle and then those domestic um, rodents like the mice can then go into human habitats and then their fleas can jump onto humans that way. So that's essentially why you tend to find outbreaks of plague at the moment in really rural areas, um, areas where humans have settled too close to wildlife, deforestation, so that you can have the sylvatic cycle of plague meet the urban cycle of plague and then jump onto humans by accident. One thing I've always wondered about the Black Death is whether that name would have been used at the time. I used the word Black Death mainly to talk about 1348 or 1347 to 52, and then the plague afterwards. The contemporaries did understand this disease as being the same disease, even though they could see changes in it. Uh, and it's, um, I think they were right. I mean, they, they, they didn't just... Some people, especially modernists and who could study diseases in the 20th century, they think, oh, well, you know, in the Middle Ages, they knew nothing and they called everything plague. Well, that used the colloquial as BS. Uh, and they made big distinctions based on clinical and epidemiological evidence. They didn't call it Black Death. They had different names for it, like the Great Mortality is one that I found repeated over and over again. Later, I think the words pestilence and true plague become more common, plague becomes more problem. And now they do use, in the late Middle Ages, and especially the early modern period, they use the word plague often for other things, like in the tracts of Luther talking about, uh, you know, the plague of heresy, or, or even earlier, the plagues of, of popular rebels, the rabble, and the but when they're talking about disease, it's often very clear that they're talking about that. The other big word that comes in in the early modern period is the, the grand contagio, or the big contagion. And I've studied the word contagion, which I think is interesting, because before the Black Death, 
when that word was used, at least by chroniclers, it was barely used by people in the medical profession for disease. It was, but it's hard to find, and much harder to find amongst chroniclers. Uh, when they talked about uh, contagion, it, it mainly had to do with heresy, uh, the spread of heresy, or popular rebellion. But the Black Death changes that. The black, all of a sudden, contagio becomes almost a, uh, a daily word, and not a word just for elites and people who knew Latin. Do we know whether this disease was the same strain we discussed in episode two, and the same one that we'll go on to discuss when it returns in the 17th century? There are essentially three different main clinical manifestations of plague. So you've got your bubonic plague, which is the most well-known and where the Black Death gets its name. You have the swollen, superative bleeding, lymph nodes, which then become black and people have nausea, vomiting, the joint pains. And essentially this was quite common um, in the 14th century and you had like a case fatality rate of about 36%. Then you've also got the pneumonic plague, which is essentially the fever, the shortness of breath, hemoptysis, which is coughing out the, the blood. And then you have, you can have person to person spread with this form of plague. And this is the one that has the most epidemic potential. So I think there are sometimes people that think that they're different types because with the bubonic plague, they don't, they, they can't see how they would have had so much death with a version of plague that doesn't um, transmit as easily. However, the bubonic plague can actually become pneumonic plague because you can get it as a secondary consequence of having bubonic plague for too long and then the bacteria can seed the lungs and create a, a secondary pneumonic plague that way and then spread from person to person or you can have the primary pneumonic plague version which essentially is when people directly breathe in aerosols which have plague bacilli hanging in them and they can get um, pneumonic plague directly. Actually, I also found out that you can get pneumonic plague from coughing animals. And before I was reading about the plague, I didn't actually realise that animals could cough. I always thought of it as a quite a human thing. Um, but apparently cats and dogs can cough and you can catch the plague from them. And the final version is septicemic plague, which can either be caused from um, the progression of the bubonic plague and pneumonic plague, then seeding into a bloodstream infection, um, and both forms can progress to this, or they, you can have a direct um, septicemic form because plague has got some kind of genetic mutations that allow it to directly go through the gut and go into the bloodstream. And then it's very difficult then to link that to bubonic plague because you don't have the buboes, which are well known and characterised and drawn in many images and pictures from the 14th century. That sounded horrific. And from my reading about this outbreak, I knew that the mortality rates were equally horrendous. So I checked back in with Sam on the numbers. The ones I know are in Cambridgeshire, where you have up to 76% of the population of these villages being wiped out. But three miles down the road, another village, village where only 5%. And I think that no one uh, repeats this, but uh, the Italian uh, uh, chronicler, Matteo Villani, who took up the writing his long chronicle of Florence in 1348, because his brother Giovanni had died from the plague. He has these beautiful metaphors about how like a hailstorm destroys one field and then skips over the next field. Or like the clouds on a 
summer's morning that fragments the light and it shines on some areas and not on other areas. And, and I think this is an aspect of play uh, which doesn't, which has some regional aspects, but mainly within, within regions, with, particularly in the countryside, of having these very different uh, mortality fortunes. I wondered whether the stories of graveyards piling up with bodies in some places were ones that the historical records would corroborate. Boccaccio talks about the grave diggers and the grave fraternities of the, the lowest, the workers who come in from the countryside and overcharge and charge extortionate rates. And you get that going on through uh, Manzoni, you know, in the uh, Promessi Sposi, uh, the same thing, the horror of these monati, they're called, these people who, uh, who collect the bodies for the grave and the bells and the being piled into the wagons. And I think the best stories actually for that come in the, uh, in the 16th and 17th centuries. Uh, that's when the literature really piles up. And I think it's, you find much more on these, uh, on these grave diggers and on the, the terror really of rounding up these bodies and some of them are, are still alive and they fall off. There probably are these burials alive. There's one uh, notary who writes a chronicle of plague in uh, Venice in 1575-6. He looks out of his window and there's uh, one sort of train of uh, horse-drawn carriages that take the dead bodies in one direction and another strain that passes under his window that takes take them down to the lazaretti to be quarantined in the other direction and, and uh, people aren't in the streets and you think that this is the only life in the city uh, sort of like with COVID-19 at the beginning of lockdown when the only life in the city was going to the going either to the pharmacy or the or the grocery store but I guess not as ghoulish as it was very Ghoulish indeed. So terrible, in fact, that contemporary writer Francesco Petrarch wrote that future generations wouldn't understand how awful it had been to be alive in a city full of funerals and empty homes. He has two basic reflections around 1348 in his letters. He talks about how it's the, the end of time, whether it's a sense of the collapse of a civilization, of a whole society, of the world. And, and other chronicles also, like, again, Agnolo de Torres says, we're afraid this might be the, the end of the world. When you think about it and you read about places like Philadelphia in 1918, when things were overwhelmed, hospitals did go over the level as we're seeing perhaps now. And this was happening in Philadelphia in October 1918, with bodies not being buried. And then you look at the mortality rates, and the mortality rate for Philadelphia was around 2%. The mortality rate, I think, uh, we get for a place like uh, Florence, at least, that, that is about 75%. It's hard to imagine, given the infrastructure these people had, the medical knowledge they had, how they cope at all, why a society didn't collapse. At this point, I thought it would be interesting to find out more about how symptoms were described by contemporary writers, and whether, as I've heard said, this was where the famous nursery rhyme reference to Ring-a-Ring-a-Roses came from. The 
ring around the rose is not the general clinical sign of either pet plague or the black death and, and, and subsequent plagues. What you do find is that not only do you get the buboes and the uh, principal lymph nodes, but you also get these, uh, this spread of black pustules, which is extraordinarily rare with modern plague. And even through the early modern period, doctors comment on this as being the most deadly form. Now, one thing that does change, that maybe that we look back and think about, changes the 15th and 16th, 17th centuries, is pneumonic plague. Pneumonic plague becomes very rare. And some of the doctors reflect that. They go back and they see, they read Guy de Choliac and these descriptions, and they say, our plague just doesn't operate that way anymore. Uh, we don't find this pneumonic plague. And there are some incidents of it, but it's extraordinarily rare. And it can spread just as fast as it did in 1348. Uh, it's just much better contained than it was in 1348, like the real revival, and I think a change in the strand of the disease in the 17th century in places like Genoa, Naples, Milan, to a certain extent, Venice, where you have 50% or more of the population, city populations, and and in the countryside being leveled by this disease. Even then, there's no description of pneumonic plague. These are people who all who get some sort of skin disorders. One could go in further with this too, I mean, too, the whole medical, the medical uh, side is, is very interesting. And, and what you have, what the Black Death really does create is a new medical genre that becomes, by the 16th century, the, the most published form of any medical text. And this is the plague text. And these become increasingly uh, written in the vernacular and written for communities and not just for other doctors to read. So they go from these uh, long uh, citations of classical and Arabic authorities stacking one off to the other, to uh, what they call experimentation, what they say are their uh, discoveries and treatment of these, of these diseases, and also, more importantly, preventative me measures. It's interesting with the beginning of, uh, of COVID-19, the instructions we were getting, well, you wash your hands, you cover your face, and, you know, you could have read that in the, not probably 1348 so much, but by the 1360s, 1370s, they were really big on washing your hands and, and doing things that we're not doing, or wearing things like using vinegar and rose water in your nose. A lot more attention to the nose than with COVID-19. I don't know why. Well, perhaps I'd better pay more attention to my nose over the next few months. I also thought it would be important to understand how these messages were being conveyed and about the role of the medical profession. Well, a lot of the impetus for this new health care is coming from secular government, not coming necessarily from the church, even though hospitals are uh, an ecclesiastical institution. It, it depends where you are, but in Italy, uh, it, it, these are university positions. Doctors aren't part of the clergy. That's extraordinarily rare. It's less so in, in England, uh, where you can be both a friar and a doctor. No cases like that come to mind. I'm sure there must have been some in Italy. But, uh, and even you have a whole system uh, that goes back before the Black Death in cities like Siena and Florence, where you have 
and it still exists today. This is a good tourist tip. They're doctors who are appointed by the city, the municipal appointments, to give give free medical assistance to people. And so I know that maybe when I first started going to Italy, uh, sometimes when people got very sick, they would call out these 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 doctors. Now, one thing that does happen with plague and uh, with the, these doctors, I think, is is looking at the causes of plague. Canonically, we know that the first cause of plague, of course, is God, but we don't want to blame God too much, so it's our sins. And but doctors you know, really don't repeat this that much. They don't bother with it. And by the 16th century, when they're questioned about it, they become pretty uh, blunt. They say, look, I'm a doctor. And as a doctor, I'm interested in natural causes. If you want to know about supernatural causes, go to a theologian. Uh, and I think that there is this growing secularization about what the causes of plague are. And I think more and more, as you march into the 16th century, certainly by the time of Fra Castoro, it is about contagion and it's about conditions like the supply of water. And the physicians themselves, we have to give them credit. In these early plague tracts, they're often they throwing up their, their hands, Gita Choliak in a certain extent, and reflecting back on 1348 from when he's writing in the second plague of 1363. He says, look, we've never seen a disease like this in history before. And he even does something that medievalist, uh, medieval people don't usually do. He goes back to biblical history, the history of plagues and uh, Livy. And he says there's been no plague in the past that can equal the plague we, we are experiencing now. Uh, and we just don't know what to do. We don't have any remedies. We don't know any cures. Then he goes on to suggest some, but he says, look, we're in the dark here. And you get a similar sense. This happens with doctors every now and then. They do become humble. This happens in 1918 with the great influenza. Doctors, some of them say, yes, yes, it's a bacterium and this is a new vaccine we have for it. But other doctors are sort of saying, look, we don't know this disease. This is something, this type of flu, if it is flu, it's a different type of flu. We, do, we just do not know how to cure it. And it's one of those periods where nurses got more credit and got more praise than doctors. I'd read about sham doctors during this period, like the doctor of physic making much gold out of the pestilence that Chaucer describes. But I didn't know how prevalent these practices would have been. Actually, the word is used as charlatans, but it's not that it's so pejorative as our word for charlatans. They were, they were people who connected with theater and then these, you know, these magic cures. So it's all over the place. But the real negative statements about doctors are really in 1348. And then I think there's a change in opinion. And I've, I've looked at that. But one, you know, the Agnolo de Toro, which is the major chronicler of Siena, says, look, one thing he's talking to his audience of Sienese, if you want to go to your graves all the, all the more quickly, um, and you want to lose your money, just get a doctor. They'll kill you faster. By the 15th century, one, we, we know that doctor's salaries continue to climb. And by one comparison, uh, they become uh, the wealthiest profession, uh, at least in Florence, by uh, 
by about circa 1400 or in sometime in the 15th century. They go beyond the lawyers. Uh, their status doesn't go up as much. It's still a risky profession, but perhaps because of the risk, their salaries go up. And and and, and the, the chronicles become less hostile towards doctors. Uh, one, a very long chronicle, a very really interesting chronicle, Florentine chronicle, by Giovanni Morelli. He, it's also an advice book for his own family. He says, look, in plague time, it's best to get a hold of a good doctor because it's not going to necessarily save you. But he, the analogy he makes is to going into battle with or without a shield. A good doctor is a shield, and you should have one in plague time. So there's a certain sort of uh, respect for what they're doing and what they know, uh, even though some of their cures still may strike us as a bit strange and uh, maybe counterproductive, like my favorite one, which is you skin the anus or the genitals of either a rooster or a hen, and you put it on top of your boil and let the anus or the genitals suck up the uh, poison. We shouldn't generalize too much of this. After all, they're also telling us to clean out our nostrils and wash our hands regularly. Well, I don't think I'll be trying that. <laughs> However, this wider discussion did make me reflect on whether there were any longer-term consequences of this dramatic experience for the medical profession. What also happens, but one has to be careful with this, is the, the evolution of hospitals. But the big moment of really the founding of, of, of many of the big important hospitals was before the Black Death. But hospitals take on much more specialist roles and much more of a definition of hospital that we have today than they had before. Often things called hospitals were just sort of places where priests and other clergy could uh, stay and spend the night for free along the roadside. And now they become really hospitals and then take on specializations uh, for different types of, of medical treatment. And this is, I think, a, a, a post-Black Death phenomenon. It seems like this pandemic left a huge mark on a whole range of areas. One thing that's rather striking is that the slower populations recovered their populations, it seems the better it was for their economy. And the case in point is England, uh, which, you know, goes into the Industrial Revolution first. And guess when England recovers its pre-Black Death population? The 18th century. When does Florence recover its pre-Black Death population? Sometime after 1850. So well after mass tourism, uh, to a certain extent, had come on the map as a, as a moneymaker and uh, Industrial Revolution. That's quite a statistic. Before we finished, I was keen to hear a medical perspective on why the Black Death has become so infamous and where we are today with the disease. So I checked back in with Blanche Oguti from Oxford's vaccine group. The death rate is very, very high with plague. Before we had the antibiotics, and you have to remember most of these plagues happened before the 19th century, where we weren't even close 
to having antibiotics or were we even close to having an understanding of, of what the plague was before there was an understanding of germ theory. And so nobody knew where this disease was coming from. They were fighting an invisible enemy. They had the plague doctors, but they had absolutely no actual clue about what was going on and had almost a 0% success rate. And if they were successful, it was, it was luck that that person had a strong enough immune system. It ravages an area very quickly, especially if you've got the pneumonic form, there's about a 24-hour incubation period, which means people can get sick rapidly. If it enters into an area, every one person can spread to seven people. It only takes 24 hours to get ill. So you're literally before your eyes seeing half the population die. That's frightening to anyone. The way it looked frightened people. It's called the Black Death because of the fact that you've got all of this necrosis and dead tissue, because you've got the swollen buboes, the lymph nodes under the armpits um, and the neck and in the groin which essentially were becoming black because they were hemorrhagic. So it looked frightening and people even used to paint on this. So nobody died without having these disfiguring egg or apple-sized things on them, marking them almost with death. At the time, especially in the 14th century, they thought that it was related to a wrath from God. So there's people who are afraid then that they're getting punished for their sins and it allowed the uprising of movements like the flagellants in Germany and such. Uh, But prayer wasn't helping. And people did actually start turning away from religion following these pandemics, um, moving more towards science and philosophy, because no matter how much prayer was made, it didn't save people. It didn't matter how rich people were, they would die. People were seeing their neighbours die before their their eyes. People were abandoning their relatives, abandoning their friends. People weren't even doing last rites. Priests were too afraid to come and lay hands. There weren't enough people alive to bury the dead. So they literally had dead bodies piled up in the streets. The smells were horrific. These things, the fact that it happened so fast, loads of people died and you could see before your eyes, but nobody had any understanding of what was going on. That was frightening. If it happens today, people have an understanding that there is a bacterium involved and we can visualize it and we do have some tools against it. However, even with antibiotics, antibiotics, I think, can reduce death rates to about 15%. But that's only if you recognize that's what it is. And when most of the population don't even believe that plague exists outside of biblical times including some doctors in some areas if you had a pandemic it would be difficult to recognize that was what was going on but if you're not treated within 24 hours you will die and then everybody around you who's within two meters of you might die and that's frightening how fast it happens and the fact that most people don't survive it if they don't get antibiotics and you can literally see populations decrease before your eyes and they look scary too And that's not the only reason it's a scary disease. Plague has also been used in war as a biological weapon, as Blanchet outlines. In the 14th century, soldiers used to throw corpses of people who died of plague over the wall into enemy soldiers and kill people that way. I don't know if you've heard of Unit 731. That was the Japanese over China. They were involved in research and development of experimental 
epidemic creating biowarfare weapons. And they used these assaults against the Chinese populace throughout World War II. And they essentially um, flew low-flying planes over China and allowed plague-infected fleas, which they bred in their laboratories, to be spread among Chinese cities. And this was 1940 to 41. So you had a military aerial spraying which killed tens of thousands of people with bubonic plague. And by the end of World War II, they found documentation of a, something called Operation Cherry Blossoms at Night. And essentially, Japan had planned to use plague as a biological weapon against San Diego in California. And they created these porcelain bombs, which were filled with infected fleas. And they were actually scheduling to launch it in September 22nd, 1945. But as we know, Japan surrendered a few weeks earlier. But this frightened America to the, to the point where they decided to push for a vaccine against plague. And we're not only interested in a vaccine for self-defense against biological weapons, because plague is still very much around today. We finally discovered that it was Yersinia pestis that was causing the plague. It wasn't until 1947 that uh, streptomycin, which is an antibiotic they found out used, was finally starting to be used in these kind of epidemics. And then they saw kind of the mortality from the epidemics go down from about 63% in 1940 to 50 to about 28% after 1950 to um, the start of the 21st century. And what you had a lot of during this time was a lot of outbreaks that happened during periods of war. So during the Vietnam War, you had a breakdown in public health services and creation of refugees, and you had uh, an outbreak of cases. They thought maybe there was a possible um, outbreak of cases during the Arab Spring in 2011, although we don't actually have much information about that. And then we also have um, quite a lot of information that during World War II, they had a lot of um, plague cases and outbreaks. And we've got Albert Camus, who located his novel La Peste in Iran uh, in 1945 because they had some mnemonic plague cases then. Nowadays, it's more likely that you'll get a plague epidemic when there is a breakdown in sanitary practices or chaos in the middle of wars. So you have a lot of these unstable countries that are being affected and a lot of poor countries as well. And I think the worst affected at the moment is um, Madagascar. And that accounts for about 95% of our reported cases. They have about 500 cases a year. They have an outbreak every year year they kind of have a plague season um, which runs between December and April. Their last massive epidemic was in 2017 which was actually outside the plague season and it was caused by just one guy. It was a 31 year old man who traveled from the central highlands and then he traveled via the capital city in a crowded bus and it ended up that 200 people or more actually died. He got bubonic plague out in the highlands and then it developed into pneumonic plague. And he managed to seed the biggest epidemic that we have had in the last few years. And it was around this time, because you also had the Ebola outbreak that kind of happened a few years before, that then governments and health organizations started thinking, right, we need to try to figure out ways to kind of get ahead of these kinds of epidemics epidemic-causing organisms that can lead on to pandemics. Now, 
just briefly, because I think it's something quite important to mention with that point, is that there are main ways that plague can be passed over. So you've got the bite of the infected flea, which we, we talked about, and this is the type that you get the, the bubonic type from. And then you, you have direct contact with uh, infectious body fluids. So this can be from hunters skinning infected animals or, uh, or like we said, getting licked or scratched by an infected cat. So this is why you can usually have um, an epidemic of the bubonic plague because you can have hunters in the village that go out and skin uh, an infected animal and then they manage to get the plague that way. But then you've got the inhalation of respiratory droplets um, and this is when you can get the person-to-person -person spread. And now the epidemics of plague that we're having these days are more of this form. And this is the really dangerous form because it only takes about 24 hours minimum to get sick from this and to be able to pass it on to somebody else. Um, you can die within 72 hours from it. Before you even realise that you have it, you've passed it on to somebody else. And every person that has pneumonic plague can spread it to seven other people. Then you can have an explosion of plague. But the ones that we get in other countries, like in Mongolia, say, which we actually get every year, um, is the oral transmission, which people don't usually know or talk about. And we have sporadic cases in the media involving individuals in Mongolia, China. And this is usually from the consumption of poorly cooked meat from slaughtered sick animals. And this illustrates how deadly plague can be because um, transmitted orally. And in July this year, there was a 15-year-old boy in Western Mongolia who died from bubonic plague after eating infected marmot meat. They had to have uh, a lockdown, essentially, of the local area, according to the health minister. And also a few months before that, I think in May, there was a, a couple from Mongolia who died from eating and infected marmot meat. So these days, when we have these sporadic forms, you do get this oral transmission from eating this infected meat. And also, I think in Saudi Arabia, um, they've described pharyngitis in the 20th century and in Jordan as well. And this is not actually surprising when you think that the plague bacterium that we have now has evolved from Yersinia pseudotuberculosis because essentially that's an enteric bacterium and it's retained quite a lot of the same genes. So it has the ability to infect through the enteric area. All of which led a group at Oxford some years ago to start working on a vaccine for plague. And they've now reached an exciting stage. We have been working on the plague vaccine, which we have actually manufactured now. We are planning on starting the trial in a month or two once we've gotten approvals in place. Professor Christine Rollier and Dr Christine Dold at the University, at the Oxford Vaccine Group, who have actually um, created, invented this vaccine. And it's Andrew Pollard, who is the chief investigator for the, the Oxford COVID vaccine, who is actually the chief investigator for this, this trial. I wrote the protocol for the trial along with colleagues, and we'll be putting that forth to kind of have a phase one vaccine trial where we'll be inviting um, um, a few young, healthy people to essentially test the safety and immunogenicity of this plague vaccine. There isn't actually a licensed vaccine at the moment, although there have been attempts in the past. So they had um, a formalin-killed um, wholesale vaccine, which was safe and used for military personnel during the Vietnam War, but there were loads of adverse reactions and loads of boosters required. You also had the um, live attenuated um, virulent Eusinia pestis vaccine. 
that there were loads of safety concerns and severe side effects. It's rarely used. It wasn't even used during the Madagascar outbreak. That's how bad they thought the side effects from it were. You've got um, live attenuated, genetically attenuated strains, which had good safety and retained protective efficacy, but still had some side effects in animal models and safety concerns. And I think lastly, you have um, protein-based subunit vaccines. These are in clinical trials, I think, in the US and China possibly, but there's the problem of multiple doses required. Not sure that they'll actually protect against pneumonic plague, which is what we're hoping our vaccine will be able to protect against. And as I said, the pneumonic form is the one with the epidemic potential when people breathe in um, plague bacilli from the spittle of people who've coughed, essentially. And you have the plague bacilli hanging inside that spittle and um, it can hang around for about an hour and then somebody comes along and breathes it in. Um, and it's the most deadly form of plague. So that's what we're hoping our vaccine is going to be used against. And we're hoping it will rapidly induce immune responses. Um, we're going to try to see if we can just get it in one kind of injection, IM injection, so that during um, epidemics it can be used uh, and deployed quickly. So yes, we're going to be asking for volunteers soon and it will be starting in Oxford. Next time on Future Makers, we journey forward in time to the last of our four plague episodes and arrive in 17th century Europe where the great pestilence has once again returned. I hope you can join me then for the next episode of our History of Pandemic season. I'm Peter Milliken, and you've been listening to Future Makers. Future Makers was created in-house at the University of Oxford and presented by Professor Peter Milliken from Hartford College. Our voice actor today was Tom Wilkinson, and the score for the series was designed and created by Richard Watts. The series is written and produced by Steve Pritchard and me, Ben Harwood. Thank you, on behalf of the whole team, for listening to the History of Pandemics. We'd love as many people as possible to hear it. So if you could spread the word to your friends and family, we'd really appreciate it.